pray. Lord, we thank you for the morning today and thank you for the time to come again and study your word and see what things uh, you would say to us from it and grow from it and uh, be sanctified in it and through it. Give us your truth this morning, Lord. Help me to teach it uh, accurately and correctly. Um, and then with the, the let this take us from here to the church as well, Lord, with the seed already planted, ready for water. Amen. Amen. All right, this week we're going to cover a little book known as Ezekiel. <laughs> a little short book. Hey, before I do that, i got to recommend this book. It's really good. It's called The Divine Tapestry. It just came out. It basically has summaries of every chapter of the Bible. So what it'll do is it'll give like a little one word or two word sentence at the beginning, just telling you what the particular book is about. So Ezekiel, for example, um, this, this guy that wrote this, Ryan McGraw, um, God removes his covenant presence from his people, dwelling with the exiles instead, and promises to restore his presence permanently by sending the Spirit under the new covenant. So that's your one sentence summary of Ezekiel. I mean, other people might do it differently. And then for every little one or two sentence chapter summary he gives, there's a verse or two that goes with it. So you could memorize verses if you wanted as well. But boy, I'll tell you, really neat. It's a neat way to study a whole book in a short time just to get a good flavor for what's going on in it. And uh, yeah, I bought that like a month ago or something. It's been fun. <clears throat> Guy Ryan McGraw, in fact, I'd never heard of him, but I, I mentioned Alex, hey, I bought this book, such and such. And he says, oh, Ryan's the man. So he must know him. <laughs> it must be, the, must be a Southern Baptist guy. Although I bought this through, uh, I get regular emails to Westminster Theological, Westminster Theological Bookstore. Yeah. Yep. Uh, was it printed by that? Uh, Christian Focus Publications. I don't know, but it was sold through, was sold through them. Mm-hmm. So that that's a publishing house out of uh, Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the Book of Ezekiel. This is a book really of judgment and promise. I guess if you had to narrow it down to two words, <laughs> it's hard enough getting it down to one sentence. But if you had to get it down to two words, it's a book of judgment and promise. And we remember too that we're looking at these books through our lens of sort of three things: it's God's sovereign rule over His kingdom, and man's God, man's response to God's rule, and then God's response to man's response. That's what we see all throughout Scripture, and same thing in this book. And it can be said in one sense, Ezekiel is a book of promises, a bunch of promises that are yet to be fulfilled. But and promises are already fulfilled. The promises that were already fulfilled were judgment, and you see that happening right in the midst of this book. We've seen it already happen in Lamentations and Jeremiah, and also promises that will be fulfilled. You know, and so so have been fulfilled in our time, but not in their time, and will be finally and fully fulfilled. You know, the promise of a new heart, of a new covenant, and of a new temple, though not the kind of temple that we're accustomed to thinking of, right? We'll see that as well. Uh, bizarre things that we see in Ezekiel, which in a way maybe shouldn't surprise us because it seems like, um, it seems like, uh, in, in some way, they, um, it's a little apocalyptic at times, much like the Revelation. And so you tend to see some really bizarre things going on. Well, <clears throat> so some of the weird stuff you see going on, basically we see Ezekiel being something of a pantomime. Okay, now a pantomime is somebody who tells stories without words, right? Somebody who acts things out. 
So we see that going on in four or five really odd ways with Ezekiel. And we see Israel and Judah compared to twin sisters, actually twin harlots with very lewd language that should make any of us blush. Some of the things written in Ezekiel, you know, again, I just probably wouldn't discuss them too much. I'm not going to. But there's some, you know, God's trying to make a point there in Ezekiel. He uses some very poignant language to... Are you recording this, by the way? I am. Okay. Yeah, some really poignant language to get... Yeah, I'm recording it on my phone because I still don't know what I did with the recorder. But, you know, with iPhones now, I don't know if we need a recorder. If we do, I'll replace it anyway. Um, some really poignant language to just let people understand just how disgusted he is uh, and, and how disgusting adult, spiritual adultery is and forsaking God is and walking away from God and forsaking the covenant. Okay? And then we see this strange vision of skeletons coming back to life. And, and then there's a vision of a new temple, but the description of that temple is far bigger than anything that was built before or after. And again, indicating that that temple is something other than what might be expected. Okay? Despite the beliefs of some of our brethren and other sects of Christianity. Can you tell yeah. us how large that is? Or you're get to- I don't know exactly what the dimensions are. I, it's, again, it's one of those things with so many details. I could have it in there. I mean, you could do the translation from, you know, uh, cubits and all that stuff, to, but it's I massive. Believe, I believe it's bigger than the per- perimeters of the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, it's, it's massive. Yeah, it's massive. So, um, yeah. Uh, in, in this book, there's at least 65 direct or indirect quotes of Ezekiel in the New Testament. And 48 of those were in the book of Revelation. Impossible to understand the book of Revelation without understanding Ezekiel. That's why, you know, to the original audience, again, you look at some of the things people have done with the book of Revelation, turning it on its head in a lot of different ways. And, I, you know, people trying to understand what's going on there. But you cannot possibly understand the book of Revelation outside of an apocalyptic uh, framework and one that's set up for us in Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and other places, but heavily in, in Ezekiel. A lot of similar, a lot of parallels, and I'll mention a few of them as we go through as well, which is instructional in and of itself. Uh, probably broken down into four major categories, if you could say this book. You got Ezekiel's call through the siege of Jerusalem, which is basically chapters 1 through 24. Then in 25 to 32, we see judgments against the nations, all the surrounding nations, God's judgments. And then what I call chapters 33 to 39, the glorious fix. <laughs> and then chapters 40 to 48 is the restored temple, which is really what uh, all of this is moving towards. All of New Covenant belief, New Covenant participation is moving towards. So a little bit about this, this Ezekiel. He went into exile as part of the second deportation of Israelites. Babylon in 597 BC. Now he was actually, well, we'll get to this in a minute, but uh, the first so the first group was sent there in 605 BC, which would have included who? Who are the four brothers <laughs> that you think of when you think of Babylon? They went there oh. even, even before Ezekiel. Yeah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, they all were, they were all deported in the first. Uh, they were all shipped out there in the first. Uh, First one, because remember, when when Nebuchadnezzar when 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 Babylon conquered, they didn't totally wipe Jerusalem out at first. They set up little puppet leaders there, and they had uh, uh, sort of local governance going on there, but overseen by Babylon, overseen by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, 
And then there was another deportation in 597. And then, of course, the big one, you know, the big catastrophe came some years later. We'll get to that. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Ezekiel's prophesying to the Jews in Babylon. There are still some in Jerusalem, so at this point. Um, but, and of course, it's, it's, it's all about not just what's going on in Babylon. It's mostly about what's going on back in Jerusalem and what they can expect. The Israelites, they really didn't think. In fact, they really didn't think there was much more that was going to happen. I mean, they, some of them had been, again, deported. And uh, they were in a place where they just figured things were going to come to an end soon and everything would be okay. We read in the first chapter, verses 1 through 3, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Chabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. This is a very autobiographical, although sometimes he talks in the third person. It is an autobiographical sketch. The 30th year is a reference to Ezekiel's age. Decidedly, he's 30 years old, which would have been the age in which he entered the priesthood. So, here he is, he's been five years in exile, and whereas he would have been entering the priesthood back in Jerusalem, he has to settle, I guess, for being a prophet. <laughs> um, and then he has this, he has this wild vision. If you continue to read through the chapter, this wild vision of the glory of God, riding on a chariot, okay? And his throne upheld by four living creatures with human likeness, but also with the faces of a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And there are also four wheels on each one to turn in every direction, so that this thing could basically go whatever it want. So no, these aren't UFOs, although some people have tried to make Ezekiel biblical proof of UFOs. Very simply, these are just chariot wheels that spin and turn. This thing can go wherever it wants. Why wouldn't it? God is omnipresent. It's not limited by any physical thing. He's not limited by uh, the, the beings that are bearing him on this throne. So he's on this, this glorious scene of God on this magnificent, magnificent throne. And we should take note right away that this vision of the glory of God is seen in Babylon. Something's up. Because where's the glory of God supposed to be? Jerusalem. He's supposed to be in the temple, isn't it? Yeah. So, so right away we get we get the sense here that something something is going on. The glory of God is appearing, and, and the fullness of that glory over Babylon, where Ezekiel is. And we see over in chapter two, chapter two, verse twenty-nine, Ezekiel's reaction. He says, uh, "I'm sorry, verse twenty-eight." He says, "Like the appearance." I'm sorry, Ezekiel two twenty-nine, same chapter. I did it again. It is. I don't know. Like the appearance of a of a bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain. So was the appearance. It is chapter one twenty nine. So was the appearance uh, at twenty eight actually of the of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So a magnificent vision of the glory of God. Much like who. Yeah, right. Isaiah had another vision of the glory of God at the beginning of his ministry. And so if you're going to minister and do what Ezekiel is about to be told to do, a pretty overwhelming revelation of the glory of God is quite helpful because he really has to do some weird stuff now. Right? He's got to say a lot of things to a lot of people that don't want to hear him. All right? And God told him that. He said, you're going to, you're going to preach to a stubborn and rebellious people. 
They're not going to want to hear a word you say. But you're going to keep doing it anyway. You can eat the word. It'll be bitter to your stomach. At first, it's going to taste good, etc., etc. Again, things you see in the Revelation. Okay? And then, so we get, hop over a few chapters, and you get these four sign acts where we see Ezekiel the pantomime here going into action. Right? So the first one, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So he basically has to take an ancient set, a primitive set of Legos, right? And sort of pre-enact, not re-enact, but pre-enact what is soon to happen to Jerusalem in the final crushing blow by Nebuchadnezzar, at which time, of course, the temple would be destroyed. And then he's told he has to lay on his left side for 390 days to bear the iniquity of Israel, and he has to lay on his right side 40 days to bear the iniquity of Judah. So, with many things in Ezekiel, you can imagine that scholars have a variety of opinions as to what is going on in some of these places, this is one of them, but it perhaps represents the 430 years they were in captivity in Egypt, or it's representing God's people bound against God's will. Okay? They're bound against God. They're bound because of it. So, in any case, what he's at least representing, it seems to me, is this sort of captivity, this inability to move about freely, this limit on sort of who they are. Yes. Oh, I'm just noticing here it says, uh, For I assign you to the number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. Mm. Uh, yeah, this may be referring to Egypt. Yeah, I mean, they were in Egypt 430 years, so some have speculated the 390 plus the 40 is just reminiscent of that, just like you were in bondage, you know, 430, reminding them. Mm. But, you know, they weren't in Egypt necessarily, of course, they weren't in Egypt for punishment, so... I guess that sort of comes right, in. That was just where they all grew into a couple million. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then in a little further down, he's commanded to eat food cooked over human dung. Mm. Flavorful. But he, he kind of appeals to God. God gives him a break and allows him to use animal dung, which was used a little more commonly. Uh, of course, once it was dried out, but representing the scarcity of food. That would, that would take place when Judah was to undergo its final siege. So here he is acting out this as well. So you see that they're, they're being bound. You see they're going, to be, they're going to have this attack, the siege work against them. They're not going to have the freedom to do be who they are. They've given that up by their consistent stubborn rebellion. And then we see him cut his hair off, and he's got to, he's got to, he's got to cut it up into three parts. And one part, this is over in chapter 5, one part is to be burned, Another part is supposed to be just chopped up, and the third part is just tossed into the air for the wind to blow it away. And you know, people are going to be looking at Ezekiel and say, what are you doing, right? And, and these represent the different fates that would befall God's people in exile. Death in the fires of Jerusalem, some by the sword, and some carried off into exile. So he's letting them know everything that's going to happen, and they're not going to believe him, and they don't believe him. They think this guy's just sort of lost his mind. They have to remember it when it happens. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think when it would happen, it would it would certainly be meaningful then. Yeah. 
But for God to put that person right there and to let them know, because they're outside of Jerusalem, they're outside of where you'd expect to hear a prophet, you're outside of where you expect any of this to go on. But his glory appears there, and then he gives them this. So his glory, in a sense, is coming in wrath at this point. And then chapter 8, we'll call this, you know, chapter 8 and 9, call it the glory departs. This is tragic. This is the great tragedy of God's people. In chapter 8, we see it begins with Ezekiel being carried away in a vision, right? In, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, the hand of the Lord God was upon me. And he looks and he has me. He says, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So what's going on we see in chapter 8 here? Take a look at, at chapter 6, he, uh, verse 6, I mean, in chapter 8. He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far away from my sanctuary. But you will see greater abominations still. And what's going on? The 70 elders in Jerusalem are practicing abomination. In the temple. At Jerusalem. They're practicing uh, Tammuz worship. They're practicing sun worship. So right, so Ezekiel's taken, again in the spirit, by, by lock of the hair. He's carried away by his hair. to, a, to a, uh, Right over Jerusalem. And here he sees the 70 elders. Involved in idolatry right in the temple of God. And I mean, what do you suppose the response of, of, of God is going to be to that, right? So then in chapter 9, we see God sends the executioners in this vision. and But only after placing a special mark on the forehead of those who were not to be harmed. Okay? And the ones who were not to be harmed were the ones who, quote, sighed and groaned over the abominations being committed. Okay? So they were to receive a mark on the forehead, the ones that sighed and groaned over the abominations that were being committed. What else does that sound like? Where do you see, where do you see that? Revelation. Yeah, right, the same thing takes place in the book of the Revelation. Right? Why do you suppose there is that parallel? Why do you suppose what's going on in Revelation is similar? Yeah, Mark? Because we don't change. Yeah, right? God doesn't change either, right? That's a good point. And that he has his people. He watches, he knows, he sees, you know, he, he sees how people respond to the things that he finds deplorable. And we should find deplorable the things God finds deplorable, right? And we should find acceptable the thing God finds acceptable. And, you know, so, you know, America is not a, certainly not a theocracy by any stretch of the imagination. Or a Christian nation. Yeah. But by and large, we do have a number of people, hopefully the true church, that is sighing and disgusted by the abominations because I mean judgment is coming ultimately yeah. the how final judgment be? I'm sorry I, well I guess well, I said how can you not be but mm. apparently a lot of people aren't bothered by what's going on every day yeah it's amazing to me it's just amazing how much worse it has gotten in the last 15-20 years well it's accelerated so fast yeah it is, it is. And, and the problem of course is too is that so much of it is getting into the church yeah, a lot of it is getting into the church. So there's there's some application there certainly to God's peculiar people in the church. I mean, what will we tolerate in the church? We have to remember what again in the, in the Book of Revelation shows us in the letters to the seven churches the things that disgust the Lord. That we need to be mindful of that. The church needs to be mindful of that. The church needs to be such so distinct from the culture it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be the light of the world. 
and we're supposed to be, you know, Christ is the light of the world, but our light is supposed to so shine before men that they see our good works, glorify our Father which is in heaven. And they're also going to see us taking a stand on things and uh, and get ugly on us, right? So chapter 11, a moment here, before, before fortunately, before we see the, the, the just the, um, let's just sort of back it up a second. We, we, we see that uh, the glory of God leaves the temple, okay? Back in chapter 10. So, uh, and that is just consistent with what we saw him showing. That, that, that's representative of what's going to happen with the, with the destruction of the temple. Uh, the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chabar Canal. Same ones. And when the cherubim went, the whales went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount to the earth, the wheels did not turn beside them, etc., etc. Uh, 22 to 24. And as, uh, <clears throat> as for the likeness, as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chabar Canal. Each one of them straightforward. So everything that he's seeing there is consistent with what he had already seen in, uh, you know, the first vision. And then, finally, and ultimately, over in chapter 11, before we get to that, there is a promise here, the first time we see this promise to give a new heart of flesh to many. Okay? Not to the unrepentant, but there will be a new heart of flesh given. He says, I will give them one heart. And when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable and abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules, and they should be my people, and I will be their God. Okay? And you know what's interesting in this book too, probably I think as many as, um, at least 60 times, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, or some variation there. They will know that I am the Lord, right? They will know that I am the Lord. Appears over and over and over again in this. Because this is again an assertion of God's rightful declaration of His sovereignty, His power, His will, manifestation of His glory. And all this was for Israel, look what they've done. Despite all the warnings, and you go way back in Exodus, and you'll you'll see that this was promised, that this was going to happen, if they persisted in in the kinds of things that they persisted in. So specifically, then over in twenty two to twenty four <clears throat> of chapter eleven, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city and the spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles then the vision that I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me and it was pointed out that yes I just want to say that uh, it's interesting that the glory cloud goes to the east of the city and it, it abode there when Jesus at the end of his life and all the disciples with him are looking over the city mm-hmm. He is on the east side, and he says about the temple right. that not one stone would be left upon another. That's right. And indicating that the glory cloud has moved. Yep. I am the glory cloud. That's right. The two or three are gathered together in my name. Mm-hmm. Denise, there am I in the midst of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, that's, I was just going to quote from a particular author that wrote that, saying the Lord's glory went up from the midst of the city, stood over the Mount of Olives, the very mount from which Jesus would describe the end of the age in Matthew 24. And that's just not the first, we'll see that again, uh, uh, another reference to Jesus in there. So there is that indication right there that we see from Matthew 24 that he is. And of course he did say, one greater than the temple is here, you know. And we would, we would of course believe that that new temple that's being, we'll talk about eventually, is Christ. You know, and then by extension, it's going to be his people in the end. Right? So, 
Now in chapters 15 to 7, we get a number of comparisons, right? So, so God compares his people to a useless vine, produces no fruit, it's just good for burning up, an unfaithful wife, and then there's a parable of two eagles. And so you get this graphic description of how God found his people wallowing in blood and how he, he cleaned and cared for them and covered their nakedness. But they trusted in their beauty, he says, and played the whore with any passerby. And this is where this language starts to get more, more and more, this constant reference to his people as whores and whoring themselves and harlotry. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry? Chapter 15. <clears throat> Jerusalem's a useless vine. And so, you know, basically 15 through 17 and 16, you get the Lord's faithless bride. And then over in chapter 17, you see that he's, you get the parable of two eagles in a vine. Again, I'm not going into a lot of detail on any of them, just because there's so much to cover, other than to make the point of, in addition to Ezekiel acting out these different things, we see Ezekiel prophesying and talking, you know, giving God's words about what God thinks of his people. Right? You are a useless vine. You're an unfaithful wife. And then with these, these parable of the two eagles, you, you got the, the, the northern and the you got the two enemies of, of Israel that pick them up and carry them away into various places. And it's just, again, this consistent um, revelation of God about the loss of his glory and why his glory is gone and what life looks like without the glory of God. It's running throughout this whole book over and over and over. You get over to the 23rd chapter and you see this comparison to two twin sisters where he calls the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom Ohola and Aholibah. Ohola represents Samaria and Aholibah represents Jerusalem. And again, they're twin harlots playing the whore. Give verses 37 to 39. Some years back I preached on this chapter. Um, I remember asking... I think I spoke to Alex in advance, like, Alex, man, I'm reading through this. What are your thoughts? I mean, do I preach? He says, Pat, somebody's got to. It's in there. You know what I mean? Because it gets, it gets, it gets weighty. It gets definitely PG-13 at least. Um, get over to the verses 37 to 39 of chapter 23. How about that? <clears throat> For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols... Yeah, uh, this is uh, chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. For when they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. So the same day that they sacrificed children to Molech, they came into the temple. You've got to be pretty far gone. Yeah, Mark? I had a chance to uh, discuss this with my sister-in-law, who's not a believer. Uh-huh. And I pointed out that the things that are going on today with uh, Drag Queen Story Hour are just the same thing as sacrificing your children to Molech. I'm sure that's pretty new to her, but... <clears throat> I. What else can it be? It's bad. I would say abortion comes even closer to that. Oh, surely. But, yeah, I mean, you have adults that are willing to foist their 
troubled ideas and their troubled consciences on little children in an attempt to normalize their own conscience and to assuage their own guilt, they have to have... They're, they're, they're In order for them to be confident and comfortable in their minds, they have to have other people agree with what they're doing. And who better to foist it on upon little children? And you see up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, they just, the city council just passed an ordinance that's illegal to protest transgender performances in the library. This is obscene, yes. And my brother goes to a church and, and there's a trans going there right now who's dressing like a trans and he went to their kids' Christmas, uh, Halloween party or something that the church was having and he came dressed like a fairy princess. And this is, this is a church, a local church. And, um, I said to my brother, I said, well, would you allow, um, and I know people that have left the church because of it. This isn't in East Brookfield, is it? Yeah, uh, right after Tantasqua. Okay, no, okay, that's over there. Oh, Quaybog Valley, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. And um, so I said, I said to my brother, he's saying that they've kind of taken him under their wing, the, the elders there. And, and I said, well, would you allow, if he's not repentant, he seems like a sincere seeker. But I said, you still wouldn't allow somebody to show up at church with their pornography no. in their back pocket. No. No, that's you know, because because that's not something that... What are you showing the children? Exactly. I was worried about the kids in the church, you know, that are seeing sure. this. Yeah, being confused. <clears throat> confused anyway, that's only <laughs> reinforcing the confusion. So uh, I think, you know, this is going to happen to more churches. Uh, I, mm. In Isaac's church, I think a transgender walked in there one time, sat down in their service, but five minutes later got up and left, met him. And Isaac just kept preaching without batting an eye, you know. So he didn't stay there, but, you know, it, it could happen in our churches. So, yes, well, it, you know. I'm sure it will. Uh, so we just kind of have to figure out what do we do when that happens. Is, yeah. Not, not yeah, and we're working on that as well. Yeah. I mean, there are some changes and some things we're preparing in our church documents to protect us legally from mm -hmm. from that when it happens. And I'm sure that might be one of their fears at that church, yeah. you know, that if they do the wrong thing, they get sued or something. I don't know. I, I don't know the right. situation. They don't go to the Baptist anymore either. I noticed their signs. It's not a playbook church. I know that you know Kirk Cameron recently wrote a book called Elephants Are Not Birds or something like that, and he's going around to libraries doing readings there. And some transgendered men showed up there at his place dressed yeah. in black and white. And yeah, just, they were in goth. Yep. Just... Uh, and you remember, and this isn't picking on them. That's what the world does. That's what sinners. That's what that's what lost humanity does, right? That's what that's what lost people do. Um, we're no better than any of them. That's not the point. The point is similar to what God has always told His people: don't practice the abominations that are going to be going on in the places that I'm sending you. Don't do the things they do. Don't worship the things they worship. I, I, I'm sending you there. Don't do the things that they do. Uh, they're the reason why I'm driving them out. I drove them out of the land because they were defiling the land by their abominations. And a lot of those were sexual practices that were perverse as well. Yeah, it is, it is, it is horrific. Well, what does it, 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 it say to the kids? I mean, the kids right. are victims in this whole thing because they're confused. Uh, you know, they have to be confused when they see things that are truly opposite from what they're being told at home. And it's been normalized through large corporate America as well with so many people adding he, him, and she, her to their, you know, pronouns to their uh, signatures at the ends of their emails. It's ridiculous. It's like, what are you, why are you doing that? 
right? Yeah. What difference does that make? Well, why are you putting that on there? It's just, uh, I mean, I hate the term, but it is sort of virtual signaling. People need to find some reason to, again, I believe it's deeply psychological to assuage their guilty conscience, and they do so by coming up with virtuous things of their own. And they think if they can fulfill those things and do those things, somehow they're accepted. It's frightful what's happening to people, how they're being tricked into thinking they have to be a certain way in order to um, count, in order to measure up, in order to mean something. Um, and, and so that's why the church is, is here. And hopefully in various ways, and, and by the grace of God and by the will of God, not, not us creating opportunities in a sense, but, but following God's lead, we can have opportunities to speak truth into this thing, you know? Just so we don't all walk out of here depressed about what's going on, I do want you to know that there are people that are getting involved and are trying to do something about yeah. mm-hmm. I just want you to know. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to stand my ground on the um, school committee that I'm on. We had a policy subcommittee meeting because, as I mentioned to some of you, they will allow children as young as 10 years old if they want to be referred to by a different pronoun and don't want their parents to know, then the school can't tell the parents. And so I'm... we got a policy just for you, Pat. Yeah. We'll start driving this pretty soon. I'm trying to work against that, you know what I mean? And, uh And... One of the things that, in fact, one of the things that one of the attendees said from the other side, so to speak, one of the school administrators, I uh, won't mention the name, said, well, look, you know, this is all part of, you know, the medical, this is a, the medical thing. This isn't considered a medical condition. They try to avoid the language of calling it a medical condition. That way the parents can't get notification. And then he said, you know, these, these policies are created by people that mean that, you know, the doctor's oath to do no harm. And I said, is that the same do no harm oath that castrates? 14-year-old boys and performs double mastectomies on 14-year-old girls, those people that do no harm? Are the ones that uh, are aborting children? Mm-hmm. We have to, we have to, you have to, as the church, be careful with that stuff because it is going to try to get in. Why wouldn't it? Everything else has. I mean, a hundred years ago, they weren't, they weren't, even in the real liberal churches, they weren't marrying uh, homosexual couples. They are now in those churches, so it's just a matter of time. That stuff will make its way in, period. The church is supposed to be the pillar and support of the truth. Okay, over in Ezekiel 24, Ezekiel's wife dies. And he is not to mourn or to weep. And again, this is symbolic. Okay? Judah was about to be destroyed. And again, as one author put it, the survivors would suffer such horror they would find themselves unable to cry or mourn. And that's what God is communicating through the death of Ezekiel's wife. Judah is about to be destroyed. And you are not to moan out loud over it. No one's to see that. You can sigh, but you can't moan out loud. You can't moan and groan and weep. And so that brings us, you know, to the sort of the next segment where we have a better future promised, right? And part of that better future, first and foremost, is a judgment against the nations. So you start to see uh, the judgments that, that take place uh, against uh, the Ammonites. So Ammon, the Moab, Edom, Philistia. Tyre and Sidon, Egypt, those nations who God at time used to judge Israel were cruel and who rejoiced over Israel's ruin and who swelled with pride. So God in turn is going to destroy them. Okay, They didn't learn a thing. He, he raised them up to bring them against the people that were set against the will of God, his own people. They aren't going to get away with it if God's people didn't get away with it. God is going to judge those nations because he consistently judges. Right? Um, 
And so those nations would also fall to other nations. And there's several chapters detailing why and how judgment would fall, along with laments, okay, with just poetic language describing the fall of such a nation, like we saw over in chapter 32, verse 6. Thirty-two six. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. Yikes! That's God saying that, right? Uh, before that, I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. And then, so that's just—he's talking about Egypt there. I will destroy all its beasts. I'll make the whole land of Egypt desolate, etc., etc., on and on. This is a lamentation that shall be chanted. The daughters of the nation shall chant it. Over Egypt and over all her multitudes shall they chant it, declares the Lord God. All that stuff. So, not only is God going to do it, but it's going to be chanted about. A song written about the destruction of God coming. Ezekiel 33, you get that famous Ezekiel the Watchman passage, right? He sets Ezekiel as a watchman, so you've got to warn them. And uh, now that doesn't mean that every person you don't witness to you're guilty of their blood. I don't like it when people make that kind of a transformation from a very specific. I have heard that preached uh, that evangelia we we have to give the gospel to everyone. If you don't, you don't warn them, and they go to hell. Their blood is on your hands. <laughs> but you know, I've been around fundamentalism a little bit many years ago. Well, if you go to hell on their own because they decide. Right. Yeah. Well, you've heard that before, right? Yeah, Ezekiel thirty-three, eighteen. When I say it's on the wicked, if yeah. you don't warn them, yeah. then the blood's on their head. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not a transferable sort of thing. This was a specific call, and Ezekiel was probably getting weary all the stuff that he was doing, and nobody's listening to him, and they don't want to listen to him. So he's 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 the watchman sent to warn God's people, but of course they don't heed, and and so the city is struck down, and we see a fugitive come running with the news over there in chapter 33. He says, uh, in the twelfth year of the exile, this is in verse 21 of chapter 33, in the twelfth year of the exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. So somebody came to Ezekiel all the way from Jerusalem. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute because he wasn't really to speak before then. It was just, again, to do all that acting things out. Other people, you know, he had the women of Chaldee, you know, singing out laments and that kind of thing, but he was silent. He was just doing stuff, not explaining to anybody what he was doing. Um, so, I'm yeah. just curious. It sounds to me like that was, a, in a way, a parable of the acting out. I mean, some people are probably said, what's he doing? Yeah. They, got, they had no clue. Yeah. And, but some of them got it. Yeah, some they did. Really, they eventually made the connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it was interesting, too, because uh, in a way, you know, Jesus' crucifixion and everything was something of a sign act as well, right? It was something of a acting out the wrath of God and, and trying to put it in vivid, pictorial, mm-hmm. full everything. Appeals to all the five senses. I mean, the crucifixion of Jesus um, just appeals to all the five senses and, of course, the soul. So God often does that kind of thing, or did that kind of thing in revealing him. And you see that in the book of Revelation as well. So we see over in chapter 34, also one of the things God's going to do in providing for a better future, 
he rebukes the shepherds. <laughs> he rebukes the shepherds for not for, for looking out only for themselves and not feeding God's flock. Okay, at verses twenty through twenty-three of chapter thirty-four, where we read, "Therefore the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord God to them: Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust it all the week with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock." They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed, and he, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, that's obviously not a reference to David, right? That's a reference to Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, David was not going to be resurrected from the dead. So, again, we're beginning to see this transition from God's judgment and wrath against his people to judgments against their enemies. And now looking out for them by wiping out, getting rid of the, the shepherds so-called that are getting fat off the sheep but not searching out the lost ones. And so at this point, it's, the question is, what is to become of God's people? You've got the destruction of Jerusalem. You've got the people in exile. And we see over in chapter 36, God's response of grace, right? A new covenant promise. Chapter 36, 22 through 29. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. Very important. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you come. So they profaned his name among the nations. He has to go out himself and sanctify that, make his name holy, as only he can do. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. So there's the new covenant promise. And now God's going to give a picture sort of what that looks like and how that happens in this Chapter 37 of this bizarre vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones, right? Uh, it was like a, it had become like a big ossuary. You know, an ossuary is a bone box. So what they used to do in ancient times, they'd put people in a tomb and then they go in there some months later when they were fully decayed and take all the bones and just throw them into a box. And then if another family member died, the same thing. You just sort of put them on the stone slab until they fully decayed. Then you put their bones. So the bones are all mixed together in there, you know. It's just... It's just, yeah, my. I just I just have to think my my niece got a PhD uh, and one of the major things she looked at this she got it in Italian art was, was ossuaries. Okay, interesting. So she looked at a lot of that type of uh, uh, box, you know. Neat. Yeah. My family in Albania they actually still do that. Oh really? But after so so much time goes by, they'll collect the the because the skin goes off the body obviously right. after a pretty time. And then they pull them all together in one plot. Yep. All the bones of the family. Wow. Not exactly an ossuary, but right, no, a similar way. kind of thing. It seems so ancient. It does. When I was there, I was freaked out when I was <laughs> when I went to the cemetery. Uh-huh. 
And then they're putting food down on the cemetery and they're distributing cookies and stuff to everybody that was there. And I thought, what is this all about? Oh, they're having you know communion with the dead, wow. eating with them. Wow. This is Albanian Orthodox? Yeah. Wow. I'm not sure how orthodox it is. It's pretty on <laughs> Really? <laughs> wow. Well, so there's this great, great big valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel prophesies to the bones. And they come together. Right? They come together as, as, as people. And they're covered with flesh. Yeah. It said the deadness of the dry bones symbolized the deadness of the people's hope. This, uh, commentator they were dried up hopeless and powerless but god's spirit would breathe life into them again he was able to take them and reunite them in one nation under his lordship so he sends the wind he, he, ezekiel prophesies to them and then over in thirty-seven twelve, therefore prophesy and say to them thus says the lord god behold i will open your graves and raise you from your graves O my people and i will bring you into the land of israel in figurative language there um, but he was going to bring them back. They were as good as dead. They were everything that was Israel, everything that they represented as God's people. I mean, the, they had died. They were fully decayed, so to speak. They were nothing but bones, just a skeleton of um, of the people of God. You can imagine a battlefield. Yeah, God's That's going to put right. them all back together. When I see that description of battlefield, just yes. vast. Yes, absolutely. Bones laying out there. <clears throat> then we get over chapter 38, right, where once again we run into things that are, you know, a, a, a bone of contention. <laughs> Since we're talking about bones, Gog and Magog, right? Gog and Magog. A um, lot of speculation over the years, especially with those who tend to focus on end times, okay? Uh, and there's certainly no widespread agreement about these nations. Uh, you'll also see... Uh, Meshach or Meshach and Tubal are mentioned. Those nations are decidedly from modern day Turkey. Okay. But most important is that these nations are from the north. And in the Old Testament, attacks against God's people always came from the north, with the exception of Egypt. Uh, but they still might in certain ways attack from the north in their alliance with Samaria. Um, so these names represent in the most general sense the enemy of God's people. Alright? Uh, in fact, Gog is mentioned way back, I think even in Exodus and Numbers, okay? Uh, Gog and Magog come up again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. Um, yeah, and signing uh, in verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And again, this is all the enemy of God and God's people. For that last great battle before fire comes down just to, just consumes them but there's lots of scripture in the Old Testament where God's people are attacked from the north so if there are some who want to take this and turn it into Russia and and uh, you know things like that by misusing the Hebrew and uh, apparently and a lot of people live on that whole thing right Russia's going to attack Israel that's what they're all waiting for you know but there really is nothing in this language and of everything we know about Gog and Magog and Meshach and Tubal that can really be considered to be modern day Russia. The point again being that Israel's enemies always attack from the north. And that's just, it's just sort of uh, iconic, I guess, of all of the enemies of God's people. Does he have a question too? Um, well, no, not really. I mean, okay. 
I was just thinking about the 200 million man army that China currently has mm -hmm. that could uh, fill that picture of you know, them invading from the east. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. It seems like a lot of things are in place that are described there, but I, I, I've been disavowed of some of the theories that I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. But, uh, uh, but of course, God wins the battle against His enemies and enemies of the people in all ages. Verse and why? So why? Verse chapter thirty-eight, verse sixteen. How did they even get power to attack? How did they? How were they able to attack and come against God's people? Well, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me when through you, O God, I, in, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we see God's sovereignty. God allows God to attack for the purposes of showing his power over them. Where else does he do that? Yeah. Well, in Jeremiah, it uses the same, uh, mm -hmm. same uh, metaphor. God says, I will use you as a battle axe yeah. against yep. my people mm -hmm. to destroy them. Yep. He's referring to, ba to Babylon as mm -hmm. a servant in his hand that he's going to use as yep. a tool to bring destruction on his people. Scary stuff. And and even way back in the Exodus, where God says, "I raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, that I might demonstrate, right? I might show His power. I allowed Him to come into the power as as a, as an exercise in my sovereignty, so that maybe even Pharaoh would see that He's not who He thinks He is." Uh, and then in chapter thirty nine, verses twenty eight, we see, um, uh, "Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God." Oh, uh, yeah, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Um, because I sent them into the exile among the nations and then I dissembled them into their own land I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore God's going to bring his people back after this seven month period of cleansing of the land where they're going to be burying Gog and Magog and the enemies for seven months so that's a weird chapter too right we're just reading about this cleansing of the land from Gog cleansing from it's been cleansed from God's people it's been, now it's been cleansed from Gog and Magog and then we get over finally to the last part of this book, chapters 40 through 48, which is all about the new temple. And there's, again, a lot of controversy over the years, many possible interpretations as to Ezekiel's vision of the temple. Uh, because there would, of course, be another temple built, but that too was destroyed in 70 AD. So that can't be the temple he's referring to, because that temple wasn't, wasn't the one, it, wasn't the, it didn't match the dimensions. So there's another ultimate temple in view, and it's not a literal building. Okay, and this is what the people should be picking up on. And so you see throughout these chapters the key features, you know, the courts and the gates and the chambers for the priests and the temple area and the dimensions of which are much larger again than the temples of Jesus' day. The altar, the ministry, uh, ministers and their duties, everything they're doing. And then in chapter 43, God's glory returns to the temple. Which is again, all new covenant language. Everything that God was going to be doing to renew Israel, make Israel what he intended Israel to be. Chapter 44, um, it's interesting too because, the, again, these commentators, Ezekiel describes a sealed gate on the city's east side. Okay? And scripture says in 44.2, no one entered it because the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel, entered by it. Interestingly, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he would have entered through the eastern gate. And that's pretty cool too. You know? So, we we have that fulfillment there. In chapter forty seven, we see river starting to we see water starting to flow out underneath the door of the temple. Okay, and the river flows out from the temple door, and slowly the water level rises higher and higher. It becomes this big river, and everywhere the river goes, new life is generated. Even the Dead Sea becomes fresh water. Uh, forty seven twelve, 
is basically the same thing that we see in Revelation chapter 22. So in 47.12 we see, uh, and on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. The exact parallel is used over in the book of Revelation where the trees, the leaves of the trees are for the healings of the nations, plural, not just Israel. Um, 47.21, we get a division of the land, but it's interesting who's included in this division of the land. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. That's an amazing verse. With you they shall be allotted inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord. You know, they got they wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff when he said that there were lots of widows in Israel at the time of Elisha, but he only went to the widow from Tyre, right? Yeah, yeah. And and likewise with Naaman, he said there were many people with leprosy in the days of uh, again, Elijah, and he says, in, in, I mean, Elisha, Elijah, who, who healed the name of Elisha or Elijah? Elisha, right? Yeah. yeah, that's right, because he had this, his, uh, his little sidekick there, what was his name? The guy that went back to get the goods. Yes. <laughs> went back to get the goods after Elisha said, no thanks. Uh, it says, but, who did he send him to? Right? Oh, Naaman, the Syrian, and the people freaked out, they wanted to throw him off. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that's right. And, 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 and he can have right here, they're going to be allotted an inheritance in the tribes. Okay? And so you get this other parallel finally in, in yet another parallel to the book of Revelation 21.12. We find the new temple has 12 gates, each one with the name of the original 12 tribes. But remember, the sojourners are also part of the tribes now. Right? The true Israel made of Jew and Gentile. So in the Revelation, when we see the 12 gates and everything for the 12 tribes... The Gentiles are included in those 12 tribes now. There's no getting around that. Again, because if you know Ezekiel and, you, and you're studying Revelation, you have to be able to make that connection. And then just the last thing that we'll mention is the very last very last verse. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. And that's how it wraps up. Right? So... Ezekiel, whose name means the Lord strengthens, or the Lord gives strength. Uh, you know, he prophesied all these years, uh, had to give the news of all the stuff that was going to happen, which did happen. So we see him being God's man over there in, in captivity, in captivity from the fall of Jerusalem up to the promise of what we are waiting for, the promise as well. And so uh, we see where Ezekiel sort of fits in with the whole plan and scheme of God and helping us to understand what he's doing. What's yet to come? You know, that 18,000 cubit temple, that thing that's bigger than life, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ and His church, there's some New Jerusalem sounds to that as well. You know what I'm coming down out of heaven, the church adorned as a bride. So um, we give thanks to God that all of that has been fulfilled. He's doing all those things. And there's sort of only that little bit left, whatever that's going to be. So who wants to close this in prayer then? We'll head up to the big hill. Would you pray? Sure. Oh, yeah. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you've reminded us again in detail. And Lord, you've shown us again that you are the Lord of the, of the earth, of the history, of the 
earth and above of us. Mm. Thank we, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are reminding us that you have everything under your control. We praise you, Lord, for that. We ask your blessing, Lord, this day, that you would remind us of this often, Lord, and, and encourage us and also, uh, as a result, have great peace because we know that you are you're in charge of all things, Lord. We trust mm. you for that. We ask your blessing this day, Lord, that we go to our other building to, to worship. Lord, be with us and be with those that we will be among today, Lord, that we might be that light among them, mm. and strengthening and reinforcing each other. We ask, Lord, this and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pat. Very good. Very good. Very good.